welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. How are you doing? I'm okay. Um, good to have you back. In, indeed, if this is uh, your first time, hello and, and welcome. It's good to have you. This week, Nathaniel Rich. Nathaniel is a, a great guy. He's This is a great conversation that we have. Uh, obviously, it is about climate change. So why, why Nathaniel? Because I started reaching out a little bit more into the world of climate change simply because it's essentially as we all well know the 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 most important issue of our time and and now that I do, and now that I suppose that brexit is off the cards a little bit uh, and, and that whole spectrum of crap is gone it's really become the forefront focus in my mind, I suppose, is climate change. And that's been going on for about a year or so now. And I just thought I'd, I'd bring someone on the show that, that knows a thing or two. And Nathaniel wrote a massive piece in the New York Times magazine, which he then converted into a book, which is called Losing Earth. The article in the New York Times went pretty massive, blew up. Lots of people uh, garnered a lot from it. Uh, and then the subsequent book, Losing Earth, is, is just a wonderful read. It's, it, it, it's, it's quite funny, really, because it's the only book I've ever read that is jam-packed with, with facts that keeps you super interested emotionally as well. It's about the 10-year period between 1979 and 1989 where climate change really became way more of a front and center uh, issue political issue within america and you've got to remember that back in those days america was the leading emitter of greenhouse gases and now not so much we leave that to china uh they're doing such a good job at it and essentially there was a time when that could have been stopped that when ray pomerantz who we speak a lot about in this podcast he was is a uh, activist who found out this terrible, pretty terrifying news in a report that climate change was becoming a serious issue, that the burning of fossil fuels could lead to devastating consequences. It really wasn't on anybody's radar until suddenly R- Rafe Pomerantz comes along, uh, Friends of the Earth guy, uh, back in the day, goes, hey, guys, what about this? What about this kind of massive problem? And he got together a group of scientists and what have you. Anyway, the book, that's where it starts and it and where it heads to is heartbreaking and incredibly important to where we are now. So that's kind of an overview of Nathaniel Rich, his book rather, and what have you. Nathaniel's also a writer of other fic- fictional work. And He's it's so he's such a rich writer. I, I no pun intended, but his text is very rich. It's it's so easy to read, and it's it's encom- it's it sort of encompasses you and encapsulates you in his world in in such an easy way. And it's it's so important if you're not really that much of a climate change kind of person, then this is such a good book to get you into it because it it feels almost like it could be um, fiction the way it's written because you can't believe the level of incompetence and the level of passion that was there for change you know and now it's look where we are now we're 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 heading we're he- we're spiraling in, into 
I don't know what you'd call it, really. I mean, death? I think so. A worldwide death. Annihilation. I can't see it any other way, but, you know, what do I know? But if you want to check out more of Nathaniel's work, it's um, his website is nathanielrich.com. Nathanielrich.com. And it's well worth checking out. You get his books there. He's got another one, another book out there called um, Second Nature. I have yet to read that, but I'm looking forward to it. But Losing Earth is the one you want to get. Losing Earth, guys. Get it. Okay? But anyway, onwards with the show. Uh, I have got a conversation with Rafe Pomerantz coming. So hang around for that in the near future. I reckon in the next fortnight, maybe just before Christmas, probably just after. I'm not too sure. Uh, yeah, and, and, and in short, I hope you have been well. I hope you are looking after yourselves. I hope you've bought all your Christmas presents. I, I hope Santa's going to smash his way down that chimney and bring all the love and all the joy possible. I, I mean that, you know, we, we do need that at the moment. And Santa brings it. Oh, man, I watched Die Hard the other day, again, for the 80th time. That is, it's the absolute. It's the absolute. And and obviously, It's a Wonderful Life's coming. So get your, get your face, get your ears around It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, Jimmy Stewart, all right? Okay, do it. George, I don't have the money. It's in Ned's house, in Peter's house. Don't you understand what Potter's doing? What Potter's doing to this town? Bedford Falls! Bedford Falls. Anyway, I am having a climate change, um, a climate change breakdown right on this podcast. Help. This is great, man, to have you on because I, since COP26, or not since COP26, it's been for quite a while I've, I've been getting more and more interested in, in climate change. And um, I mean, I, I, because it's in a way climate change, my level of interest in climate change is in, in a way a little bit like climate change. It's sort of, it's been going on for such a long time. I don't know when it started. Um, but when I found your book, I didn't find your essay um, in the New York Times. I found the, the book. Um I don't know. As soon as I started, I was like, "This is a this is a book that I needed." Like, this is it's it's kind of a yeah Greek tragedy kind of vibe to it, but it's also got a very well structured narrative, and you you keep it really simple, right? And but not without weight, if you know what I mean. So, broadly speaking, what was that your intention all along, or did that just kind of happen because you're you're you know you're a fic- fiction writer anyway so did that kind of happen anyway yeah th- well thank you I'm <clears throat> uh, it's nice to hear that I I yeah it came about in a very unusual way as you said it was originally a uh, it began its life as a magazine article for the New York Times uh, magazine where I'm a, a writer at large and there was this um the the magazine had received this this major uh grant from a from a journalistic uh institution to essentially to devote an entire issue to a single article, um, an article that itself would be the length of a small book, and to uh, devote it to the subject of climate change. And they, they came to me with that um, uh, offer. And, and so it was incumbent on me to try to figure out, well, what 
you know, what's what story about climate change is deserving of that kind of, of treatment in, in, in a mm. place that would, you know, in a publication that would be read by many people. And I think, uh, you know, I, like you, I mean, I had been f- f- reading and following about following climate change for many, many years and, and sort of gradually increasing levels of uh, anxiety and um, engagement. And I and yet I felt that that so much, if not all of the writing about the subject had been um, circumscribed in very narrow terms, um, by which I mean, that, you know, there was a ton of uh, journalism about the science, of course, the predictions, you know, what what we should expect with two degree warming, three degree warming, et cetera, the whole litany. Um, there was a lot of, of excellent reporting about um the damage that the oil and gas industry has done to, you know, popular and political consensus on, on climate policy over the last 30 years. Um, and, and, you know, there was also some reporting about the political debates that happened. Um, but <clears throat> very little had been written, I felt, about um, two major things. One was, you know, how did we let it get to this point? You know, how we sort of knew what we know what happens you know, starting in the the late 80s, early 90s with the oil and gas industry, especially in the U.S., just starting this massive campaign of disinformation um, and the politicization of the problem. But why was nothing done before that when actually these problems go back? You know, our understanding of these issues, at least, goes back to the 19th century. Um, And then even more important than that, I felt, you know, nobody had actually written a dramatic narrative about climate change outside of, you know, at least in nonfiction, Um, That is to say, you know, no one had written a history, no one had written about characters, people, real people who were forced uh, to really grapple in intimate personal terms with um, just the scale of, of, you know, depravity and and dread that we're we're now experiencing. you know, their first person narratives of, you know, a journalist goes to report on some problem or, you know, goes to see the iceberg melting or whatever. Yeah. Um, but there hadn't been uh, really immersive, uh, dramatic storytelling um, in, in a way that, you know, the, and I think outside I think of the, like 2012 with like Dennis Quaid or something. What, say again outside of like the film 2012 yeah no right. outside of, yeah you, i mean you see it <laughs> right. in, in fiction or right? you see it in some some hollywood films although not a, you know it's still even underrepresented there and you see it in Massively. some science fiction um and this is obviously changing more and more as the years go by but but certainly when i took the assignment there was really nothing uh and i felt that in order to understand not just the you know the political issues and the scientific issues but but more importantly to understand the ways in which this this great uh, crisis was touching our our personal lives, our inner lives. Um, mm. I thought you needed to tell the story through characters and and really get inside their heads. and And this is a long way of saying, you know, that that's how I came around to the idea of writing about um, really the first group of people who. Um, not only began to understand the issue in in concrete terms, but began to f- to dedicate their lives to it and feel themselves, their own lives, their own you know views of the world threatened by um, this ominous uh, reality that that we're mm. advancing quickly into. Yeah, no, that's succinct, man. That was great. Um, I just think 
that that you're absolutely spot on and i i don't know why but i I think this is what's interesting about political debate um it's always moved into the ground really of either misinformation or you're i feel personally one feels personally that they're not too they're not intellectual enough to understand it to comprehend it um and therefore when you move it into the sphere you've done it, it into a a um understandable narrative it suddenly starts becoming oh okay i get this this is like yeah like i said like a greek tragedy or like a shakespearean play well it's more straightforward than a shakespeare play but um it's no but yeah. i think you're right it's it, it's an intimate you know it's not just like a, a political issue that's out there you know like mm. like any other it's it's actually um a problem that is completely reshaping um, our culture, our the way we see ourselves, the way we see our understand our future, you know, especially the younger you are, the more intimate and personal it is. And so to to only tell the story in these sort of abstract terms or as a political issue um, or a scientific issue feels to me to really lose track of the heart heart of the matter. When did you come across uh, Rafe Pomerantz? I mean, was he always on your radar? Or was this the, when you started to look back at this story? Was he just, this is, oh my God. And, and Hanson, these these characters um, of kind of like almost like, they've been like divinely pop, popped on this earth for, for, for reasons of good. It was just seems so like perfect for you. Yeah, it was one of those rare, <clears throat> I mean, finding Rafe um, Pomerantz, who's really the hero of the of the story, um, was just one of these rare strikes of serendipity that I don't know. I think one is lucky to experience, you know, once or twice in their careers. But mm. I, you know, I, I had I had I had the the basic outline of the story. You know, this period from 1979 to 1989 when um, it seems that we, you know, we're we're closer than we've ever been since to to meaningful uh, global climate policy. Um, and, you know, it begins in 79 when there's scientific consensus um, is established. Um, you know, basically the scientific picture hasn't really changed since since then. We've yeah. known everything that we, you know, we God. knew everything that we know now more or less in 1979. In 1989, you have um, the beginning of this this um, retreat, um, you know, oil and gas industry mm. gets involved. And, and so I was I knew there were certain you know, I had certain points along the way, and I knew there were certain figures that would, would inevitably be um, important, like James Hansen, who became sort of overnight at the end of the decade, the, the global, you know, face of, of global warming, I guess you could say. And Al Gore, um, of course, who made it a big issue in his early political career. Um, and 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 yet, as I was having conversations with anyone I, I could find in, in sort of Washington policy circles, um, where, where this the story takes place, uh, this one name of Rafe Pomerantz kept coming up, and everyone kept saying, "You got to talk to Rafe. You got to talk to Rafe." <laughs> and and uh, you know, it was confusing to me because I hadn't seen I'd done extensive reading already by this point, and really hadn't seen his name very often. And um, and what I I slowly pieced together, especially once I finally met with him uh, at a hotel in in Washington on on one of my reporting trips, I realized that you know, that had been intentional, that, that his name had been left out of the press um, during that decade for a reason. And the reason being that he was um, determined to find uh, the best advocate, you know, to put in front of the cameras and, and put in front of reporters the best, um, most, most um, sort of 
respectable and trustworthy advocates that he could find. And he often felt yeah. that that meant people other than him. But he was really the person who was driving um, climate policy for that decade. He was he was also the only environmental activist. I think this is something that's hard for people to wrap their minds around. Really, the only environmental advocate uh, activist in the U.S. who cared about climate uh, between 19, you know, 78, 79 uh, until it became a major national issue, um, thanks to largely to Rafe's efforts by the, the late '80s, um, yeah. and so he was, um, you know, was I think more more than anyone else um, in Washington at the time was responsible for bringing the issue before the leaders of the government and ultimately before um, the American public and the global public to to some extent. Um, during that period, and and yet um, he never had given interviews really about it, and 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 fortunately, you know, I was writing this at a time later in his life where he was happy to talk and um, and and eager to do it, and and it was a huge, you know, it made made the story possible basically because he gave me everything. God, yeah, I I mean I'm th- I'm thrilled because I'm a, I'm I'm speaking to him on Wednesday. Um, oh, because fantastic. Of, because- because of your book so oh that's wonderful um, oh he's and yeah. he's also just the most charming charismatic guy um like he you know the irony is that he would have i think he would have been a great mess- messenger I mean, <laughs> right. um you know he 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 completely uh down to earth smart funny um you know you can see why you'll see immediately why why everyone loves him as soon as you start talking to him yeah when people like reagan start popping up um, you must have been sort of going, okay, this is going to be good for the narrative because this this guy is like, like basically trying to not deliberately, but maybe deliberately, who knows, um, kind of end the world, uh, <laughs> <laughs> keep his power, Ra- keep his grip on power. Reagan, yeah, Reagan, yeah. Well, Reagan is is <clears throat> it's fascinating. I mean, I think the challenge with this history. Um, is to tr- you 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 have to. I think this is a challenge for me as a writer, and it's also a challenge for for any reader, contemporary readers who are who are reading the history in in our current you know political climate. Um, the challenge is to uh, force oneself to to realize that the you know these this very sort of paralyzed politics that we have now um, can't. It, it does. There's not a one to one relation to where things stood, you know, 40, 30, 40 years ago. And so, you know, you have, for instance, in the the U.S. in the 1980s, this whole um, sort of subgroup of conservative Republicans who are um, pro, you know, environmental, pro-conservation in favor, uh, and then towards the middle and the end of the decade, uh, staunchly in favor of major climate policy. But that's um, that's just the, the the brilliant part of your book, man. It's like and 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 it, and it is a bit surprising that when you bring that up, because but com- compared to the Republicans of today, you know, uh, it, it's it's astonishing to think that we've slid that far. But you can carry on with your point. I just wanted to you know agree with you. Yeah, and it, and it, <laughs> no, it's and it's and so it is sort of you know as much as you can see, and certainly within Reagan administration and a number of his policies, you know, would fit right into a sort of Trumpian worldview to some extent um, today, but there's also this whole other wing of the party that I guess today would be forced to be Democrats um, who were, um, you know, not only sympathetic to these sort of concerns about about climate change, but were, were 
um, leading the leading the charge for policy. When it comes to Reagan, the other thing to understand about Reagan is, you know, deeply poisonously anti-environmental, you know, pro-regulation, pro-oil and gas, all the rest. And yet, there's no evidence that he had a real view about global warming or climate change um, in his administration. There's, uh, you know, a deep, deep um, <clears throat> desire not to do anything that would cause any kind of environmental regulations. So there's there's deep opposition to any kind of meaningful action um, that might be proposed. But at the same time, um, you know, you have him in 1986 um, meeting with Gorbachev and, and pledging to lead a global agreement on climate, which essentially would become the part of the basis for the original IPCC conversations. What? Um, sorry, just quickly, one one thing: is your mic okay? Because it's going a bit mad. Is it's like moving or something? Oh, sorry. Perhaps it. Moved it's okay. A little, oh, yeah, and I'll go back. It, it's rattling, but also the IPCC. Can you just because I yeah, I forget, so, and if <laughs> I've forgotten, then no one's gonna know. <laughs> right. So you have right. So you know. Reagan, in the middle of the decade, as climate change is becoming a growing political concern, meets with Gorbachev and, you know, they, they, they pledge in this joint statement to lead a global effort to stop global warming. And, and it's that agreement is essentially the basis for um, these global negotiations that, that continue to this day with, you know, Paris and, and COP26 more recently. Um, and so there's there's not um, you know so it doesn't track exactly onto the present. On the other hand, you know because Reagan was so um, violently opposed to any kind of environmental law, and when he came into the White House in in the early '80s when he was trying to you know overthrow just about every kind of environmental regulation that had been passed in you know the previous century, um, it had the effect of kneecapping. Um, the momentum on on um, you know climate policy and and studies yeah. because the environmental movement and people like Rafe Pomerantz were forced into these rearguard actions just to preserve these basic you know environmental policies like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and it it it, it had the effect of stymieing um, any kind of you know climate policy for about half half the decade until um, yeah. really the yeah nineteen eighty six eighty seven comes around. So- so do you think the emergence of Reagan is one of those is is the sort of the decline then of of the the slope sorry the the trajectory towards positive change or do you think it's a bit of the the I don't know the failure of the scientific community to really get this message out to the public or and the press is it, is it kind of like a bit of a yeah a, a mixture of of bad bad timing or what have you yeah well it's a, it's it's a bit of both i mean you, so you have this early major movement in the late 70s both globally and in the u.s um a huge number of studies a carbon dioxide program within the department of energy in the u.s and under carter there are these these major efforts to really solidify the science and start looking at legislation um then of course, Reagan come, comes along and the, the political men, momentum for climate policy is dead in the water. Um, but you have a separate issue at the same time that that's deeply um, uh, painful for, for people like Rafe Pomerantz and climate activists, which is that this, this old guard of, of American scientists who are at the time, again, this is hard to, to think about in 
the the political context today when scientists are just completely disregarded by, you know, certainly by the, the last administration. Um, but there's this enormously influential, powerful class of um, scientists who came of age with, you know, after the World War II and the Manhattan Project. Is that, is that the Jasons they ha- or something? Well, there's, yeah, and the Jasons are part of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. This sort of secret, uh, yeah, they're, they're sort of secret cadre of, of scientists who investigate major foreign you know, policy and, and national security issues. But this, this group of scientists basically are responsible for putting out this major report that comes out in 1983 during Reagan's first term that reviews all of the science on climate change. The report's called Changing Climate. And, and although it finds, you know, it confirms basically all the worst findings and worst fears that scientists have expressed about global warming up to that point, the conclusion is, let's not panic. You know, we'll figure it out more or less, and and that reflects a certain old way of thinking, a kind of American um, old guard way of thinking that you know we're so powerful and so right. rich that sure this is a problem, but future generations will will sort it out. And so that's that's devastating. Um, Keynesian, and yet, right? uh, yeah, and that really like stops. Said. That stops the progress dead in its tracks for a number of years, um, but but the fight is not over because by the by the eighty six and eighty seven um, there's new momentum uh, thanks largely to the ozone hole and and they're they're back on track um, going into the end of the decade. So and what this what you do time and time again this book is bring hope right and you, you it, it, to a degree to bring sort of bring hope to the future that you, to such a degree that you feel like this is a work of fiction because it's on a it's, it's like it's being told on a parallel universe uh but another another earth somewhere on the other side of the milky way we literally haven't made any progress since 1989 which is astonishing to me yeah i mean and and really the tragedy of the of the story for me of this decade is that you know at the end of the decade after the world has signed its its first and really only major global environmental treaty to to reduce the ozone hole. Um, you know, everything is in place for a global treaty uh, to prevent uh, catastrophic climate change. And mm. the tragic thing about this agreement um, is that it, it falls apart even before there is major institutional opposition to it. So there's a moment, a very brief moment in 1989, where, you know, global concern about climate change is at an all-time high um, and it's bipartisan. There's bipartisan support in the U.S. for major um, climate policy, and you even have George H.W. Bush, who's president, pledging to lead, you know, a global effort. And it crumbles. And and you know the story of how it crumbles and the different, you know, sort of villains and heroes at play there is, uh, you know, I, I write about in the book. But essentially, there's a failure of of nerve. There's there's a failure of will and. And shortly thereafter, you know, the sort of the the pieces lock into into place that that will thwart any kind of meaningful policy um, to to follow. And 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 for me, it's you know, the the, the fa- our failures of the last thirty years are frust are enraging, you know, and 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 yeah. terrible. Um, but the failure uh, before that, you know, before there was it had become a political issue is even more disheartening in a way and more, more tragic because it, it was a failure, you know, essentially we failed before we had these arch villains of oil and gas and, and politicization 
that was bought by by oil and gas industry money uh, to to fend off. You know, we 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 failed mm-hmm. before there were those those countervailing forces, and that's um, that forces a kind of sobering, I think, reevaluation of of the problem. When you say like you know before everything started falling apart, before the deal was ratified and what have you, to 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 bring it all under control, climate change under control, we had it in our grasp. In my mind, that is back-channeling from the likes of Shell, BP, uh, Exxon, whoever, and putting pressure on Reagan and whoever because they can see, or Bush, because they can see what's coming, uh, you know, massive control of um, fossil fuels. Is that is that right to think it, that there was some back-channeling and some evil doing there, or, or was it just a, a, a... No, actually, I mean, there's plenty of evil. You know, there, there's no end of evil from the oil and gas <laughs> industry, but, but that kind of... Um, pressure uh there's no evidence of that kind of of political pressure on climate on on global warming um before 89 90 you know i i reported in losing earth for the first time these these white papers that were published both within exxon by exxon the you know the world's largest oil and gas company um then and i guess now and and within the American Petroleum Institute, which was the industry, you know, the largest industry lobbying group in, in America, um, that established for the first time uh, these strategies of you know denial, of trying to sow doubt, of trying to pressure politicians and buy off scientists and all the rest. That all is articulated for the first time in 1989, and it's in response to this sense of foreboding that the industry feels that that there is going to be massive legislation but before that the oil and gas industry though you know very well aware of the problem you know going back to the you know 50s um is not really is not engaged politically in you know the the legislation that is then being written and introduced so there is this brief moment where you know they have plenty of other environmental and health you know problems and PR problems on their hands, you know, well, you know, for the whole history of the industry, but certainly through the 80s, um, that are, are far higher priorities than global warming. And it's really not until uh, the legislation starts to seem like like real, you know, that it might actually pass under a George Bush administration that uh, those players come in and start exerting pressure. But, but in between, you know, in that pause between where legislation's introduced uh, Bush is pledging to, to to sign legislation and lead a global treaty, and and when the oil and gas industry mobilizes behind this this um, this effort, uh, this this group effort to try to stop it, there is about a year or so of mm-hmm. possibility, and that's ultimately the that's the climax of the book. Is why why couldn't we succeed in that you know year or two um, before the the gates you know locked down. Um, yeah. which they did shortly, you know, shortly thereafter. You say like the gates locked and everything, the walls came down. How did we slip into that? Like some, become so cemented in that? Was that then literally just, right, we've done everything we can politically, government have done, we've done everything we can. We're not going to win this or we're not going to win it. We, we just don't care enough anymore. We're moving on. Is that the kind of vibe that ha- went, went, went on? Yeah, well, a few things happen. I think the first thing to understand, and this is also sort of, I mean, it's all, it's almost laugh, you know, hard to, it's almost like risible at this point. But 
you know, the oil and gas industry and those white papers, they, you know, they, they said we need to get out in front of the public and, and try to, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but, you know, try to persuade people that this isn't so bad, that this might not be right. as bad as scientists predict. And to do so, they started this really rather small communications um, operation, which is, was run out of one office at the American Petroleum Institute their, their communications office, which was two former uh, reporters who had been, um, you know, who had been lured over to the industry uh, to run their, their comm shop. And, and they started in a fairly tentative way uh, to start, you know, looking for scientists who might write editorials questioning the scientific consensus. They started okay. uh, having conversations with politicians that were, you know, Republicans that were friendly with industry to try to get them out and and to try to encourage them to oppose some of this legislation that was coming. And they started finding scientists who could give quotes to newspapers and magazines, um, again, kind of mm. questioning the consensus or questioning the severity of the issue. And what they found was that those first, you know, somewhat tentative efforts um, paid off enormously. Because a subject that up until then, you know, for, for most of the 80s and especially the, you know, from 1986 through 1989 had been this the subject of just, um, you know, panicked headlines and articles and front page, you know, front page of Time and Life and you know, New York Times about how global warming had arrived and it was a disaster. For the first time, you start seeing journalists cover it in a very different tone, which is essentially... Um, you know, taking the the industry's line and saying, "Well, is it so bad? You know, is is it is is is, is, it, is it as bad as the, as the scientists say? Here are some some credible scientists who question the consensus, and that's the beginning. Of course, it get you know by the time you get a few years out from there into the mid '90s, you have just in, incredibly um, uh, aggressive, uh, almost cartoonish lies about the science no, that, is, that the industry is right. advancing, but. But what they find is that with a little effort, just sowing doubt um, is effective enough to stop uh, the politics from from ramming these things through. And and so they dedicate more and more money until it's a kind of billion dollar enterprise where they're just there's just this huge, um, uh, just huge quantities of cash flowing into this disinformation uh, empire. But it starts sort of. Um, you know, tentatively enough, and and I think the industry itself is surprised at how successful uh, this this uh, method is. Do you think people were ready for it? That's why. Do you think people wanted that because they'd have they'd had years of doom and gloom, and they just want well, we can't fix it. We've tried. Clearly, no one can fix this. There's, but now I'm willing to. Oh, this scientist said it's okay, and oh, I can carry on doing what I what I do anyway, and my, carry on with my life. It's easier that way. I think there's some element of that. There, there's there's certain a human, certainly a human instinct to kind of not, you know, put to to try to shrug off anything that's uh, discomforting, you know, and and that that yeah. that questions one's view of the world. Um, you know, you have also uh, the Bush's economic team and a number of right wing economists in the early '90s start saying, you know, this will kill our economy, which is another industry line. Um, that that takes great takes on greater purchase and, and makes it even more difficult. But I, I do think you know 
when you look back at this period when everything was kind of fluent, fluid, you know, and you had politicians on both sides who are interested in, in policy and, and, and the rest, it, it does force one to, to ask, you know, how to question, well, how, you know, how good are we as a, as a species, as a civilization at, um, you know, caring about uh, long-term problems? You know, how, how good are we at, at, you know, sacrificing even a sort of small amount in the short term in order to help uh, in the long term? It's, it's hard to not feel that this is our destiny at the moment. Well, I think, you know, and this is also something that fascinatingly was pointed out, you know, way back in the in the 70s, you know, that some of the first social scientists who started becoming concerned about climate change started, you know, predicting this, this problem, you know, you know, that essentially saying, well, we're as a species, as, as you know, democracies, you know, culturally, economically, psychologically, you know, we are very bad at dealing with these big problems that unfold slowly over. But but that's not to say that we can't overcome that that challenge. You know, it's it's a real challenge, I think, but but it can be overcome. And mm. similar challenges have been overcome in the past. And but I think what, what we we've learned is that it requires more than just um, you know, a good argument, a logical argument. You know, it requires a, a much deeper, more passionate engagement. But we have though. This is a problem, Nathaniel. We have. We've we've had this for years. We've had like the even this the recent emergence of Greta Thunberg and, and, and what have you and, and Netflix documentaries and wonderful things. It's nothing's changing. It just seems like at the moment we're destined to just fall apart. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think you hit on a few important things there. I mean, one is that in the you know in the period I write about, you know, Rafe and and others are well aware that China you know is going to emerge as the world's leading consumer of fossil fuels, and and in fact, there's an argument. Um, I think in, in the Pink Palace episode early on by one of these these political theorists who says, you know, this is our chance now. You know, you still hear, you always hear about, um, you know, in the current conversation, like we have 10 years to fix this. We have 10, well, they were saying we have 10 years to fix this in 1980. And and of course, it all it all hinges on your de- on your definition of the word fix, you know, in the context. But, mm-hmm. but they were saying in 1980, you know, right now the U.S. is, the leading, you know, emitter of fossil fuels and also has contributed more to global warming than any other nation. We have at this moment this unique opportunity to lead because we're the most guilty and we have the most power to do so. But the window for American leadership on this issue is closing because pretty soon we'll be surpassed by China and, and India and the developing world um, that will need to modernize and will need to burn an enormous amount of carbon to do so. And and so this is our chance, and you know that adds to the tra- the tragedy of it. But but to your point about the current moment, I mean, I think it's yeah. There's a lot to to of bleak things going on uh, in the world and in our countries. Um, I I do think at least in the U.S., but I think I think really globally, there has been a pretty dramatic shift in the the conversation about climate change that dates back to. 2018, which is, you know, after I, I wrote the original article, um, 
that the book was based on, but before I, I completed the book. So I was able to write about it in, in the book, which is that the, and, and the, you know, th this may sound sort of silly at first, but basically the message, the activist message on climate has shifted dramatically, which is to say that in Rafe Pomerantz's time, basically from the 70s until 2018, you have this argument um, that's essentially an appeal to reason, which says, you know, we know what's happening, we understand the science, and we know that the longer we wait to address this problem, the worse it's going to get. It would be, you know, it's foolish not to act. Um, and of course they were right, but I think what the history shows is that that message isn't enough. And what you have emerging in, in 2018 with these Greta Thunberg and also all these, these youth-led movements um, in the U.S. and abroad is, is a different kind of uh, appeal. It's a moral appeal and saying that, you know, not only is it stupid not to act, you know, foolish not to act, but our failure to act is um, a betrayal of the most fundamental values that we claim is the basis for our society, for our democracies, for our civilization, that if you care about equality or justice um, or fairness, then, you know, you have to care about climate change because it it makes all of these problems much, much worse all in every mm -hmm. kind of manifestation. And so, you know, that might not seem like much on paper. It certainly doesn't change the, you know, the, the pace of, of carbon emissions, but it has led to a, a pretty radical shift, at least in, in American politics, um, where you have climate has, has gone from, you know, maybe the 10th most important concern, even on the left to one or two. And you see movement on the right as well. Now there's not enough, you know, we're not there yet, but the shift between in the last few years has been dramatic. And, and I think as you go further along and, and all of these, these anxieties become less conceptual and much more immediate for, for many more people in the, on the planet, you know, you will have this movement towards, um, real action. But of course, like with everything in climate, it, it's, you know, how fast and, and how quickly and at what scale is, is the big question. Yeah. No, I, th I, th I think what you've, you've, you've made me think about there is, um, that basically if you, if you're on the right on the, you know, far right of within States or what have you, even you have to agree that if you want to carry on burning, like, you know, I don't know if you want to carry on burning the American flag and, and dressing up in a fucking KKK thing, you're only going to be able to do it for like, you know, 30, 40 more years. You could do it for another hundred and you could do it for another 10,000 years if you want, you know, but just understand, do you know what I mean? Like both sides, <laughs> you know, keep, 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 keep being weird. Okay. Well, don't, but you know, <laughs> yeah, but just, you know, your grandkids aren't going to be able to, you know, have the confederate flag you've got to be careful here <laughs> I right like you know? <laughs> i haven't heard it expressed that way yeah i mean i think the other thing to understand is that that with climate it's it's such a top the messaging on climate at least in the u.s on the right is such a it's such a top down um sort of bs um political platform you know it just comes right from oil and gas industry and then it filters down through fox news and the rest down to the down to the public but it does not, I don't think it has the same salience, you know, it, it, which is, I guess, like a political science term. It doesn't, people don't feel it as strongly as other core <clears throat> issues on the right. It's not, I think, like a, a striking 
uh, counter example would be abortion, which is actually something that people feel really passionately about, so passionately about that the right co-opted this whole idea and made it essential you know, to motivate their voters. Climate's the opposite. It's top down. And so what you find as you go from the top level of our politics down to the local level, um, uh, you see a massive weakening in in the sort of rhetoric and the belief. And, you know, I live in one of the most conservative states in America. I live in Louisiana, in New Orleans. New Orleans, of course, extremely democratic. The rest of the state, you know, bright red. And climate, you know, this is one of the most threatened coastlines in, in the world. And, you know, you don't find a lot of climate change denialism on in coastal Louisiana. In fact, you know, and this is something I've written about in my more uh, more recent book, Second Nature, we have what is, I think, the world's most ambitious climate uh, change mitigation plan currently to retrain the flow of the Mississippi River to rebuild the coast the coastline, which has been you know destroyed by oil and gas and and other um, human interventions over the last century. And so, you know, the same is true of Florida. You can you can ask Rafe Rafe Pomerantz about that. That's his current activism is trying to get the Republicans in Florida who are, are deeply, you know, care about climate change and, and rising coastlines to convince, you know, to, to basically push the rest of the party um, towards towards meaningful policy. And so yeah. I think there, you know, there's there's a possibility of of of, of movement on this issue um, to a much greater extent than there would be on, you know, something like abortion or for that matter, you know, civil rights and race issues and, and the rest of it. This is something that's been um, you know, it's been it's been spoon fed to a kind of befuddled, you know, populace here. But it it's not. I think it's it's eminently budgeable. You know, they're, they're, it's it's not deep in their hearts. It's just something. It's deep in the messaging, and I think the messaging is has been shifting pretty rapidly the last few years. Mm. Yeah, it's essentially it's just want to keep your swastika. Do you want your grandkids to keep your swastika? S- just think about the planet. Um, that's, a, you know, that's a new line. I like that. Dude, that's a new, try yeah. that out in the next election. Yeah. Oh, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll talk to I'll talk to Rafe about that and see what yeah, he yeah. says. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, about that. <laughs> um, I was recently moved to become a full-on vegetarian. I've been a, um, a pescatarian for seven years, and I very rarely eat fish anyway. But I, I watched uh, Sea Spiracy. Um, isn't it? Isn't it more pertinent that we need to swing swing a little bit more attention onto what's happening in the oceans? Yeah, and, and I mean, there's there are certainly enormous movements dedicated to that and increasing awareness um, about yes, and, and the ocean. It's sort of a catch-all for just a, a a ton of different and mostly interlinked environmental crises, um, mm. from overfishing to yeah, bleaching of the corals to the um, increased temperatures and, and, and all the rest. And, and, you know, what's especially disturbing about a lot of that is that our understanding of, of a lot of the science and biology of the oceans is still rather rudimentary. Um, it's, it's astonishing what we don't know, you know, and, and what kinds of effects that we don't fully understand. I mean, yeah, a story I've written about is the, this mysterious, mass suicide of starfishes up and down the, uh, Pacific coast of, of the, of the continent where, you know, the, the sort of this, this sense that it's caused in some way by global warming, but, but the, the actual, um, mechanism can't really be pinned down because there's so much we don't know both about, you know, individual species and about, um, the ecosystems, um, of, of, of the oceans. But, 
you know, I think what this touches on is also a larger issue that, that and this gets back to sort of where we began about this personal aspect of, of climate change, which is that, you know, there's really no end of, of horror <laughs> stories that, that one can seek out. Um, and, and, uh, and each of us has to, you know, decide, you know, where, where we're going to live, you know, where we're going to live psychically. And it, you know, which is not to say oh, that, yeah. you know, some of us, I think, may dedicate our lives to writing about these issues or, or you know, joining Greenpeace or something like that. I yeah. think other people just try to ignore it completely. And in between, there's a wide gulf. And, and each of us have to, has to kind of navigate uh, that in our lives. You know, do we, do we become vegetarian? Do we live off the grid? Do we refuse to take, you know, modern transportation? You know, each of us has to, we're, we're even forced into this position where each of us has to, you know, do our own risk analysis and do our own. Do you think there's going to be a time where it's just like, oh, well, veganism isn't enough now. Fucking like whatever, eating you know, be, being a vegetarian isn't enough. It's like, it's just gone too far. Well, I think we're already at a point where individual choice is, is not enough. I mean, I think, I think of course. So then government intervention, right? And then you can't have that because you'll have goddamn riots. Look at the COVID for God's sake. People just, people, people going mental in, in the streets of Europe. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I think we're in a dark place. I mean, I, I, I do think that, and, and yet I do think major policy is possible and, but we're certainly past a place where there's not going to be, um, you know, a serious fall from from where we've we've been. I mean, I think, you know, that it's you know it's still possible to avoid a lot of horrific outcomes. But the best case scenarios are also out of of reach, and this is this is part of the challenge, both you know political, but also you know psychological uh, and mm. cultural challenge of climate change is that. We're, you know, we'll always be in this sort of muddle where, you know, we the the best is out of reach, but we can still avoid the worst. It's not exact, but it's not exactly a rallying call to say, well, let's just avoid mass, ex- yeah. you know, total extinction. <laughs> let's just let's just aim for only the disasters of two degrees. You know, it's a it's something that You're right. Let's aim know, for activists let's aim really. For- str- Five. Let's aim for five mil instead of ten nil in in a football match. So, exactly. Match, you know? yes. it does. Who, who right. wants that? Well, I know, and that, and, and and honestly, that's what I've tried to, you know, what I find myself writing about again and again is not so much, you know, the differences between five nil and ten nil, but the the challenges of being alive at this moment and being a thinking, responsible person in this society, and having been forced into, I know, making these decisions that you know, and they're not just decisions about. Um, you know who you vote for their decisions about how you live and who you are in the world and and, and i think that's the central aspect right no and i think that's that's sort of the central character of of our culture now at least if you're a younger person in our culture is is you're forced to kind of you've been dealt a, a raw hand a bad hand and you're, you're forced to to figure out your own personal best solution to it it's it's deeply destabilizing and and and, and you know and i think it it it's part of the reason why this era feels so unmoored, you know, and, Absolutely. and I that's think such a good way of putting it. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that's where in the, there's a role that could be played that, that can be played here by, by literature, by, by writing and storytelling to help us think through these issues a bit more deeply and a bit more um, 
intimately. And so, so that's the kind of writing that I've been trying to, to do is that it's, it's why I wrote losing earth. And, and it's really, it's really, I think most everything I I've been writing the last 10 years is trying to puzzle through some of these, these challenges of, you know, not necessarily, you know, should we all be vegan tomorrow, but more, you know, how does one navigate this, just the minefields of, of, of a modern existence where there's really no uh, best case scenario and, and, and one has to just, you know, choose one's own misadventure here. It's only because you wrote this book. I, otherwise, you know, and I've watched stuff on too. I, if I was, didn't watch, if I just kept my head in, in the sand, I'd just be talking to you about um, your first book, which was about film noir, which is just absolutely brilliant. I, mean, I haven't read it, but it looks absolutely brilliant. <laughs> well, it, it, um, well uh, yeah, Losing Earth is, is sort of a structured as a noir in that right. you know things are going to end up badly for our heroes and it's Man. all a question of how bad yeah no I mean I, it, it does feel like we're in a noir era in, in this way I mean uh, just the sense of of just suffocating dread uh, <laughs> that one feels but you know I, I think there's also you know the, it's not and, it's, and you can I think you can expand it beyond climate and into this larger environmental or ecological transformation that's that's underway in which you know everything that we know everything that we think of and sort of the myths we've told ourselves about the natural world are um are being exposed as these you know total fantasies and delusional <clears throat> fantasies and we're entering this period now where we're increasingly um becoming aware that there's nothing natural anymore about the natural world and that that human beings have altered, you know, every square inch of land and, and, and atmosphere through our own activities, usually, you know, recklessly. Um, and, and we're, but we're also starting to take greater responsibility, um, in how the future is going to look, you know, on a really a physical level as well as, as, um, you know, culturally and the rest. And, and, and so I think we're entering a really eerie time and, you know, it's not all going to be, uh, catastrophe. I mean, I think there's, there's also, I mean, in where I live in Southern Louisiana, you know, they're rebuilding the coast in this very dramatic way. It's probably, you know, we'll still suffer a lot of damage and people will have to move and all the rest. Um, but there's this, this massive reconfiguration underway that, that I think is, is somewhat unsettling and, um, but in some ways we'll, we'll try to preserve, uh, we'll, well be able to like preserve you, some of the things we've lost. In the book, you say, you know, what's happening in, um, the, in, in Holland when they're building, you know, these, these, these dams or, you know, walls to keep the water out, the sea out, tidal surges, that, that is something that we're going to have to, <laughs> every single country is going to have to have that <laughs> right. at some point. Surrounded like, by oh. walls. Yeah. Right. And so there's like a weird, it, it's, it, there's also just this weirdness to it that we're coming face to face with, um, our actions, you know, and, 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 and being forced to take some responsibility. I mean, you know, as recently as whatever, 1989 or maybe 2000, um, you could pretend that nothing was happening, that, that, the, that the planet was just the same as it had been for, you know, during the Revolutionary War or what have you. And, and now you can't, you know, we can't say that anymore. No one, no one believes that anymore. And so um, it's forcing a, a a really dramatic transformation of our relationship with the planet and the natural world. And I think there's, um, you know, that there's something violent about that, but I, I also have some hope that that will force, 
um, a different kind of engagement in these issues because you can't just really go on as you were because it's everything is quite is becoming quite strange and different and and I think as younger generations um, you know will always feel it more intimately than older generations and you will see this shift but um, but as you said of course things will get you know will will we'll get worse no matter <laughs> what we do and it's it's more the yeah. question of trying to uh you know decide what what kind of life do we want on this planet what what kind of um you know what kind of terrain do we want what kind of and also, cities what, and cultures uh, and are we teaching climate change at school in a in enough of a serious way that isn't just like you know a little bit of like um you know pandering almost it's interesting i mean these are issues that i'm sure you know, that I've thought about certainly, as I'm sure you have, uh, yeah. since we're both young, have young children. Um, you know, I've noticed in the U.S., I don't know how this is in the U.K., but in the U.S., there's been a pretty profound shift in the way that parents are, are you know, told to, or at least a consensus um, how, you know, parents are supposed to talk about race now, say, in America, where when I was a kid, I think the dogma was, you know, don't introduce racism and racialized thinking to children because children don't think in those terms and, and let them, you know, don't, don't, don't sort of force them into these, this old, this old system. Um, and I think that's shifted now. It's, it's, there's an acknowledgement that guess what? This is the world we live in. There's a tremendous legacy of racial injustice in this country. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, and to not be honest about that, even at an early age, is, is essentially to be lying to your children and to set them up mm. for disappointment. And so yeah. um, people speak a lot more openly about skin color. You know, we don't get into all of it, but but that there are differences and that's okay and, yeah. and, and all the rest. And I think in the same way, the language around climate change will evolve as well, that, that we're not, I don't think parents will feel comfortable talking, you know, talking about these issues with their children in some kind of a neutral way when when it's very clear that, you know, the world that they're inheriting will be worse <laughs> and more dangerous in many ways than um, their parents, the world of their parents' uh, childhood. Terrifying, terrifying. I mean, really is. But um, I think I think speaking honestly, you know, both as a parent and as a as a writer and as a you know person in society is is really the only approach and I think where the this the new activism has been so successful is that they're speaking you know young activists are speaking honestly not just about you know the nature of the problem but about their own fears and mm-hmm. anxieties and and you know that it's personal this is something that you didn't see from the Al Gores and and frankly the Rafe Pomerantz is that you know there the line was always I'm worried about my grandchildren which right. sure that's sincere I'm not questioning that but that has a very different emotional valence than a young person today who says, I'm, I don't want to have children because I'm, I'm terrified. Um, or I'm fearful of my life. You know, it's a very different kind of, uh, approach. And I think ultimately it's more, it's more powerful and, and I think it's more honest as well. Yeah. God, that's a, that's a pretty good place to stop, I think. Um, but. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.